welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Peter Kenny. And I'm Robin Howson. And this week we'll be talking about playfulness and persistence. We meet John McCulloch and explore his three collections. And we'll dip a toe into what many think of as the world's oldest known work of literature and also discover the first collection from Laura Tice. But first, let's find out what John McCulloch had to say to Peter. John McCulloch's first collection, The Frost Fairs, won the 2012 Polari Prize. His second collection, Spacecraft, 2016, was named one of The Guardian's best books for summer and was shortlisted for the Ledbury 40 Poetry Prize. His 2019 collection, Reckless Paper Birds, was shortlisted for the Costa Poetry Award, but won the Hawthornden Prize for Literature. He teaches creative writing courses at the University of Brighton and also for the Arvon Foundation and New Writing South. So welcome, John. Welcome to Planet Poetry. Many congratulations on having won that Hawthornden Prize. That's an absolutely huge achievement, and in my opinion, completely deserved. What were you doing when you found out? Thank you. It's very kind of you. Um, I was completely unaware that I was even on the shortlist. I was literally doing some washing up, and I had a phone call on my mobile from um, one of the judges. Uh, I rather terribly can't remember his name. Um, he was a lord. He's very posh. And he said to me, um, yeah, have £15,000. We love your book. And um, I especially like the one with the musical penis. And that was, yeah, that was the end of the phone call. And then I thought it was, you know, I did some checking online to make sure that this wasn't some kind of scam. And, yeah, it turned out that, <laughs> yeah, he was being genuine. And then the money arrived in my account. So it was a very surreal experience in the middle of lockdown because, yeah, they don't usually announce yeah. the shortlist, apparently. So I had no clue that I was in the running for it. It was literally only after the book had won that um, I knew anything about it. I was looking at the list of previous winners, you know, and there's people like Evelyn Moore, Graham Greene, Jeffrey Hill, Ali Smith, Alice Oswald, Hilary Mantel, Bruce Chatwin, Ted Hughes. I mean, my God, does it feel real yet? I mean, to be spoken of in the same breath as those people. It's very strange. Yeah, yeah. I certainly um, had no idea that I would be. I mean, I love all of those authors you've just mentioned. They're all um, fantastically inspirational. And yeah, I I didn't particularly think of myself as being, um, yes, in a group of um, such company. I think probably because the Hawthornden is usually won by a novel or biography. I think the previous poetry when it was um emily berry's first collection many years ago so it wasn't yeah even on my radar as something that i was um particularly thinking that i would be in the running for so yeah it was an amazing surprise in an otherwise fairly terrible year but yeah, yeah. I, I had a good summer because of that what we're gonna do if that's okay with you, is dip into all three of your collections reading a bit about you and also uh I think we're friends on Facebook. You know, you allude to sort of coming from Watford. Um, 
Uh, yep. It's a sort of a, an area I know pretty well because of um, having spent a lot of my life in North London. But there's this po- poem of yours, which uh, I think would be a really good place to start, which is Angels Over Hatfield. Could you read that for us? I'd love to, yeah. So I was born in Watford and grew up there. And my mum was born nearby in Hatfield. And um, growing up in the 50s, um, she encountered uh, what happens in this poem, which um, concerns just after the Second World War, when um, it's a very cheap accommodation um, was put up to um, help house all these people desperate for somewhere to live. But the aluminium roofs used for the accommodation um, were blown off one night by um, very strong winds and were um, sailing around in the sky. And my mum remembered this. So this poem was really inspired um, by yeah her experiences um, just you know after the Second World War. Angels over Hatfield. We wake to rattling, a warped ceiling, this small house being slapped like a drum. Part of outside wants in, though Christ knows what would hunger for bottle green carpet and box bedrooms thrown up after the war. Then a sucking noise, a squall of dust and the cheap shallow pitched roof peels away into night, trailing wires as kite tails. We're blown utterly open, an old moon scrutinising stained trousers and sheets. A flash from next door, their roofs climbing too, then a third, twenty more, aluminium angels thrusting into the troposphere, pulling the street with them as they gather and wheel. No one has told them they cannot soar, that a roof's life is to sit like a lid. Beyond pylons and beaches, they clank as they vibrate on gales, testing their nerve. Why should they care for futures when they curve through each moment so fiercely? Young beasts charging through starlight, colliding like symbols inside the clouds. That's great. I just love that unbuttoning of a neighbourhood and just literally tearing the roof off and this kind of catastrophic symbol clash in the sky as an end. It's just so full of drama. It's just at what point in your life did you sit bolt upright in bed and think, you know what, poetry is the thing? I suppose it must have been at school. I remember one time I got told off by one of my teachers for saying that um, I didn't really like poetry. It was like this when I was very young. But then I think just before my A-levels, one of my teachers gave me a list of poets to read, and it included Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. And I think that, as with so many young people, the violence of their imagery, the passionate nature of their poetic impressionism really uh, struck a chord. And um, I wrote for some years very terrible pastiches of their work, which had lots of 
blood and um, decapitations and suicide and death. And yeah, that was my first brain into poetry in the mid 90s. Very, very uh, Ted Hughes and Plath. They were the um, the gateway drug to my poetry life. <laughs> Did you feel your identity was one of a poet from quite early or, or are you still someone that is just someone that happens to write poetry? Um, I think that I was very dissatisfied quite quickly after I went to university and read um, more contemporary poetry, but also the poetry of other students. And I thought, um, oh, I've really got to work a lot harder at this business. So I was probably conscious of myself as a bad poet in the 90s. And yeah, I wasn't the most talented person in my creative writing classes or the second most. I, I loved reading other people's poetry, but... I didn't think of myself particularly as a talented poet. I think that, and and that was good. I think that was healthy for me and it made me want to work hard and go off and uh, after university and just spend a lot of time um, reading, reading, reading and really honing and editing and spending lots of time trying to get better so that I could write pieces that might move someone else. One thing I've noticed about you, John, is in your reaction with other people and on social media and so on, is that you're just continually encouraging other people and being really supportive. Maybe that fact that it it didn't come as naturally as leaves to a tree at the beginning, that actually you had to really work at it. Yeah, that's absolutely the root of the encouragement that I try to give other people. It was a very long, slow process for me. And I suppose I was kind of fooled as many people are when they're starting out by the genius myth, the idea of uh, Mm. writing poetry as a gift granted to um, an individual at a young age, you know, in the womb, I suppose, maybe the idea that um, you are, you either are a natural talent or you're, you know, you're never going to be good enough. I think it was the romantics we have to blame partly, I'm afraid, as much as I love teaching on their work at university, they did spread this idea that um, it's all about prophecy and being an oracle and um, having a natural propensity. And obviously, the thing with the romantics is that they are, um, they're all white men, and they're all kind of um, quite, well, not all of them, but a number of them are quite privileged. And I think that that set me back a little way I did have to spend years and years quietly honing and getting better but I think that that really stood me in good stead I'm very used to spending a lot of hours reading a lot of hours editing and honing I've never particularly thought of myself I mean even still now whenever I open up my books I always found something that I don't like I'm always aware of what to me is the sticky tape holding poems together as much as other people might enjoy something or rate it i think paul valeri said um that a poem is never finished only ever abandoned and that's certainly something that i am conscious of i completely agree about this genius myth as well i think it's absolutely pernicious it's actually a really modern idea as well i think it it definitely it can be a source of hope that if you are willing to put in the hours to hone your craft Obviously, not everyone's going to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. But wherever you start from, I believe that you can improve, that you can strengthen your handling of techniques and structure. I want to ask you to read another poem now, quite simply, because it's one of my favourite poems of all time by anyone. It's I've carried a door on my back for 10 years. Uh, Would you read that for us? Yeah, I'd be very happy to. 
This poem's from my second collection, Spacecraft, and it was part of a ten poem sequence um, inspired by the fact that my first partner had uh, several years before passed away from an AIDS related illness and we'd been out of touch for some time and um, he tried to get back in touch with me and I didn't get the message and yeah I felt kind of like I was carrying around a lot of emotions for some time after his death guilt principally but we'd had a happy time together and then we yeah we parted on not the best of terms and so I was rather haunted for some time and I wanted to write something about those feelings of grief, I suppose. And the whole book, Spacecraft, is all about grief, absence and emptiness as creative forces, as things which are responsible for other things happening. They are um, generative forces in the book. They are creative rather than simply involving circling around things. They uh, change the world, remake it. I've carried a door on my back for ten years. You lugged it from the builder's yard. Now it's my turn to know its stiff weight. The slow chafe of pine against vertebrae. A decade-long kiss flush with splinters. I closed it when I left. The lock snicked. Then I noticed it hitching a ride. It never gives up. Patchy blue, invisible straps. A faint knocking, though nobody's there. So many slab hazards. Repeated thumps to my skull. Brass hinges clouting strangers as we creep into lifts, beds. I lie awake on its panels. Framing rectangular thoughts, obsessed by the side I can't see, what grows there. The problem is, you died, so there's no way to set the thing down. No wall to prop it against, with its stuck handle and fracturing paint. All day we continue our back-to-front tango. This dance where I almost but never arrive where I'm shut off to visitors for hours. Then, with one touch, swing wildly open. Gosh, yeah, I, God, I love that poem so much. That, And it's quite funny that some of the lines that are the plainest, uh, I find, you know, this a faint knocking though nobody's there. I always think that with plain diction, simpler language, I always think it's the way to go mm. when you really want to move someone. You need to, I think it really helps to have a, a direct route. As much as I love jazzy yes. metaphors and fancy phrase making, I think when you want to pack a punch, the simple diction is the way to go. I lost the person who was at my at that time my best friend to AIDS. I didn't really understand that, but for about 10 years afterwards, I was getting this kind of survivor's guilt because he was this fabulous writer, but the fates had chosen to take him and not, and not me. And I, I I had a sort of period of about 10 years where I didn't really write anything. One of the things, many, many things I love about this poem is the sort of, when I first came to it, I thought that's a really kind of ungainly image. And then after a while, I sort of habituated myself with the poem. 
and then the the rightness of it, the sheer rightness, and what that's what I love about poetry can actually expand your sense of what's possible and what's right. And it's interesting what you were saying about having felt blocked by uh, Survivor Gill. I spent, I think, about five years on spacecraft. Um, it was a book that very slowly came together. And after I'd written that door poem and Spacecraft came out, I was flooded with ideas. And I wrote the next book, Breakfast Pepper Birds, very quickly, the whole thing in uh, like a year and a half, whereas both my first two books had taken a very long time each to come together. Something came loose after Spacecraft. Maybe it was something to do with Survivor's Girl. I don't know. But uh, yeah, my working methods now are very different to my working methods on the first two books. One of the things I, I love about your poetry is the sheer playfulness with language. Where does that come from? Because you were saying earlier that you've had to work really hard. I remember Auden saying something about a poet being someone who's in love with language. And that's certainly something that I've felt in that uh, before a poem communicates its full meaning to me, I'm very conscious of, of how I respond to the sounds in the poem. And often before I'm aware of what, what meaning I'm going to um, gather from it, I'm just affected by the uh, weight and texture of sounds, the particular flavour of words. I really respond to that. It's something in the body. It just gives me goosebumps. And there have always been certain words I just really enjoy saying and really enjoy hearing. And that mm. instant bodily uh, reaction away from logic and away from meaning is something that's really central to me. I think that the the medium is the message to a large degree. That's why I write poetry, I think, because I've always uh, loved the uh, delicious quality of many words. There's this poem, am I pronouncing this correctly, Thorn? That's how I that, say, that, yeah. yeah. That's that, that letter that looks like a kind of slightly mutated P. It's one of those poems that just sort of wheeled in and I'm not even sure if I could give an adequate explanation of what's going on, but um, I had fun writing it and I'm glad <laughs> if anybody enjoys reading it. Whenever my poems are slightly more um, not instant, whenever they're not really immediate, I'm often less kind of confident. I'm, I'm quite shallow. I kind of like enjoy it when I get um, an audible audience response. And so sometimes I don't tend to read my less immediate poems out when I'm um, performing just because I'm, you know, I dread the deathly silence. It's difficult <laughs> to tell a pleased silence apart from a, a bored silence. I think this might even be the first time I've read out this poem. So anyway, here it goes, Thorn. Enter thief. Old English. Thief. A shifty sound, Thorn. Voiceless, dental, fricative. A conspirator's whisper that hides in thickets soft as thorns. Thief, thief, thief. My ear searches the wordwood. Its trees thicken constantly, become swollen as throats. This is where you skulk, lover, where thorn dropped from the alphabet, crouched down in the scrub and became it. The sound rushes out now, a gust through dead leaves, broken twig in my gullet. But I can't find anyone. I leave the thicket, forget. I wake up 4am with a shadow above me, 
its breath cool on my face. A human form, not the man I was looking for, not me, but something with bark for skin, bracken fingers. An animal that is not one, but many, hovers over me, silent, waiting to speak. Thief, it whispers, and slips back to its wood. I find that very mysterious. For me, I was uh, when I thought about it, I think it's sort of a lost letter, and it leaves me somehow with that sense that we're, we're somehow borrowing language from silence. You know, this is a stolen thing, you know, these words and these sounds. Perhaps as a writer, you know, you're acknowledging that sense of the borrowedness of this thing you're playing with. I, yeah, I really connect with that. For me, language is all about trying to recover what's lost, what you don't have in front of you. And I think there's a particular poignancy around words that have vanished from the English language, like flittermouse or flother, are two of the ones that crop up in spacecraft. And around two letters that have disappeared from the English language too. I think there's something that resonates with me regarding uh, the history of language and the ghosts that inhabit it. Um, now I'd like to uh, turn our attention to breakless paper birds. I mean, you, you must have some kind of strange prize magnet lodged inside <laughs> you, Sean. Would you read Flock of Paper Birds yeah, for us? Yeah, Flock of Paper Birds is the poem which I guess gives the book its title. The phrase breakless paper birds appears later on. But it was this poem that um, seemed quite central to me. As a child growing up in Watford, I used to go to uh, Sunday school and I used to sing in the choir. My parents weren't even deeply religious, but I think they just wanted to get me out of the house on the weekends. And I did internalise some not great stuff through that process. And um, I suppose this poem is kind of responding to the strange leap I made from that upbringing to the life I have now. Flock of paper birds. I needed the god of my childhood to be useful. So I folded him, shaped his pages into wings. Cranes at first, then more challenging roosters, swallows owls. I pinched edges, split clauses to make word plumage. I fractured Leviticus with pleats. Now toucans mount doves on the kitchen counter, near an unholy pile of geese, cloacas gaping, beaks jabbing everywhere. Birds plummet from shelves without bothering to flap. Remember nothing. Ink blurs. Feathers yellow. They drown in baths. Rip luridly. Turn up mangled in the hallway. Footprints across their necks. Mostly they're individuals. Smoothly indifferent to each other's fates. Though now and then. Some prop up neighbours if they topple. And when I lie with a visitor beneath my quilt incubating his glorious buttocks. The flock discover their throats and sing together while I guide my tongue along warm creases and the tight sheet of his body unfolds. 
I just love the absolute exuberance of that. Just this kind of metamorphosis of the pages of a Bible into all these kind of origami birds and then, you know, into the sensual encounter. Filthiest poem I think I've ever written. I think because a lot of my earlier work was more historical and perhaps intellectual in some ways. Um, Yeah, I think that poem was a surprise to many people. Um, It was to me and certainly... I hadn't appreciated when I read it. I think I read it first out at Ledbury Poetry Festival. I love performing them. I, ho- I hope they'll have me back. <laughs> but the <laughs> audience that I read it to, and there were lots of gasps when I got to that, the, yes, the mild filth at the end. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a sort of slightly longer poem from Reckless Paper Birds called Sun Gazer. Could, could you read that for us? Yeah, I'd love to. It's inspired by true events. When I was an undergraduate, I think it was 1999 in Norwich. I got this infection from a contact lens. I, iritis, it's called, it's like pink ring around the iris. But when the infection went, uh, my body carried on responding to light. I had this instinctive um, reaction that I'd had from the infection that should have disappeared. Um, I had to like paper up the um, the windows. I couldn't watch TV, use computers. I couldn't stare at candles anything involving light was very painful it sounded like you were becoming a vampire john <laughs> yeah it did, and i was a goth at that time as well so um but yeah it wasn't, <laughs> that, this wasn't part of it but it was it made my life so difficult at the time i remember thinking that you know dreading that it was going to carry on forever because my social life became very very limited i lived in very tight parameters because i didn't want to go anywhere where there would be bright lights that i couldn't control sun gazer it gathered when i was 24 an infection from a contact lens the pink halo around one iris my dread of light A searing bulb had the gaze of a basilisk. Watching TV was like staring into a volcano. My eyes boiled in their sockets. Like an arachnophobe, I knew how many gleams there were in a room where they hid. I smothered windows with newspaper, made my bedroom a dungeon. Let me vanish. The infection went, the problem stayed. I visited a local clinic. Chin rests, slow voices, drops of fluorescine to stain my corneas. Good news, announced the doctor. He couldn't find any problem. This didn't sound good to the thing that wore sunglasses indoors, that on dates blew out the restaurant's candles. Bury me in the cellar. I stopped leaving my room, became obsessed with those fish that live at the bottom of the ocean in total darkness. How natural selection breeds change. Sensitivity to the slightest shift in pressure. Jaws with rows of colossal, impossibly curved teeth. I dreamed of looking in mirrors at my towering fangs, my wincing eyes enormous. My skin covered in small brilliant scales. It hurt to see. A therapist suggested I gaze at a burning match for five seconds. Build up slowly. 
I put a time in my diary each day for watching TV for two minutes. It felt like counting down to execution. Finish me. It worked. I was not killed by Anne Robinson or the nine o'clock news. I ordered table lamps of every kind, coloured bulbs. I left my dungeon. Now I exist in the realm of light again. I understand there are times when it is necessary to approach a blazing house and enter. Times when I must open my eyes wide and let in every quickening flame. I'm glad you weren't, <laughs> weren't killed by Anne Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, a poem is open to all kinds of interpretation. You know, this idea of you know wanting to be buried in a cellar and then being drawn back to to walk into the creative fire, you know, makes me think how creative people somehow have ebbs and flows of creativity, sort of like, you know, personal boom and bust sessions. Is that something that you recognise? Oh, yes, certainly with me. I will very often have um, a year of writing poems every other day. And then I will have a whole year of um, producing nothing at all. I think after Reckless Pepper Birds, I had a year of not writing anything, not a single poem. But then after that, they wouldn't stop coming, as with when I first wrote Reckless Pepper Birds. Very normal for me, boom and bust, binge writing. I don't recommend <laughs> it. I don't recommend it as a course to pursue. But, yeah, sometimes you just it's just the way that things turn out. You know, I think I read in your social media that you experienced a period of withdrawal and silence in your life. But mm. The next book is called, oh no, I'm not supposed to give the title away yet. But yeah, the next book concerns um, anxieties, personal and cultural. So my eye problems were psychosomatic in nature and um, related to nerves, anxiety. And when I've had um, extreme burnout and breakdown and been unable to work, I've had to have time off work, like, you know, a month or two. And one of the most distressing symptoms I get is when it's really, really bad is I'm unable to speak. And at one point in 2003, um, I think I had a month of not being able to speak. I could only make these weird like animal noises. I couldn't speak properly. And so, yeah, that's something that definitely influences my interest in uh, silence and sound. I think that awareness yeah. of having been, uh, yeah, in periods of my life, unable to speak. Another hallmark of your work is the way that you kind of effortlessly stir in you know popular cultural references i happen to be have a, a sort of guilty lady gaga pleasure <laughs> um, in fact i'm not i'm not quite a little monster but you know <laughs> i think oh, i've been long in the tooth for that <laughs> i think one of the things that appeals to me about lady gaga is the same reason i love david bowie kate bush Björk, I love the reinvention between albums. There's something very interesting to me. I really connect with musicians who um, are really committed to creativity and to mm. producing something fresh each time rather than. Uh, there are so many writers as well as musicians that produce a very similar collection each time. And the same with many musicians and albums, whereas I really enjoy artists who push boundaries and reinvent themselves one of the other things I love about Gaga is that it's one of the few times I felt really in sync with um, queer male culture more broadly. 
the weeping Gaga speaks. He moves her ladyship into the flat. A Gaga poster tacked above his bed. A sunken waif, two inky tears corrupt a powdered cheek, her eyes black as an addict's. Hour after hour, they bore into him as he swaps trackies, lifts weights, gulps juice. She eavesdrops while he whispers the day's sins to the phone, her face tender, unshockable, weeping still. When her voice arrives, she wails incessantly that it's not right, how she's small and boring, unworthy of a place on his wall. It devastates me the way you cradle that glass. Some nights the sobbing's so intense she shakes loose from her pins. A mass of sleek black hair crashes onto his body. He wakes at 4am, smothered, her eyes pressed to his own. He props Gaga on a chair, explains how secretly he's humdrum too. How he invents most of this stuff as he goes along. But she won't have it. It is terrible to be a god and listen. That's just great. That's just great. What a nice nice way to, to end our interview. John, I just feel like we've just scraped the surface of all the, the currents of things that are in your work, but uh, I urge our, our listeners to go out and buy all your three books. We look forward to the new one. And it's been so great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm a fan of John's work, as I'm sure you know, and I just thought that was a brilliant interview. I loved him reading his poems, and whenever I've seen him read... I've always enjoyed his style. He kind of brings these poems to life. He just inhabits them. And every one of the poems he read out was just so entertaining and interesting. That beginning, the angels over Hatfield, I loved that idea of these corrugated roofs, you know, taking flight. And we were, we were open to the sky, (laughs) suddenly exposed right up to the last one about Lady Gaga. I could really. I'm a fan of hers as well. He's so honest, isn't he, when he talks mm. about his his writing practice and the fact that he admitted, you know, listen, I wasn't born a genius. You know, I wasn't even the second yeah. best person in my creative writing course, but he worked at it. He believed in himself. And I just think that is such a good role model, isn't it, for all of us? I love that thing about the idea of not being a genius and actually having to work at things. Absolutely, yeah. I had a friend, Janet, who, when I was in my 20s, when I first met her, I thought I was a genius. And she sort of said, geniuses don't exist. <laughs> um, yeah, she pointed me to this book by um, Raymond Williams called Keywords, as I remember it. And I was kind of reading into it about the history of the word genius. And it turns out it's quite a modern invention. People like you know, Shakespeare or Michelangelo, for example, would never have thought of themselves as geniuses. Once you allow for the idea that genius doesn't exist, all these behaviours, you know, like I, I think of somebody like Dylan Thomas, the idea that to be really inspired, you also have to have this lifestyle 
which is utterly damaging to you to live up to this romantic idea of what this tortured genius should be. Whereas I always think of T.S. Eliot working in his bank, you know, <laughs> sort of. Uh, you know. Quite, yes, quite. A lot of poets that we think of now with their very ordinary job, day jobs, you know, Wallace Stevens mm. or um, Larkin or whatever. Yes, I just think that idea that if you work hard and you take your craft seriously, you can turn, it's got to be some sort of talent. You know, you, you turn a, a talent for something into something really, really good. And another thing John said about um, using, you know, simple diction, if you want to pack a punch, simple diction mm. is the way to go. I mean, that so resonates with me. And you're right about his playfulness with language. He's... And it's, he's obviously kind of magpied away so much language and, and deploying it. But there's just never, it never seems pretentious or it's not showing off. He's not trying to draw attention to his own writing. He's no. just writing about things brilliantly. And he um, turns things around the way he took that Lady Gaga poem, mm. this idea of buying a poster and, and then completely reversing the relationship so that it's the poster that envies the bloke who's working out in his bedroom. And yeah. and that is just such a clever conceit and immediately made me laugh. And, and it's just that surprise that he's so brilliant at coming up with. Like I said, I sort of joke with him that he's he's got a an award magnet in him. That, <laughs> you know, it's well deserved. You know, it's completely well deserved. Yes, I thought it, I thought it was interesting, and he said that there are certain poems he won't read at a reading. I mean, I know that mm. maybe that's a truism, but yeah. I certainly know that I do. There are some poems I'm very happy with on the page, but I wouldn't read them because I'd be well, kind of worried, I suppose, that they wouldn't be received well, or that people just wouldn't get them, or do you do that or do you think others do that? When I used to read Lowe's which in the very late 80s and the early 90s, I'd be doing two or three readings a week. Um, wow. And, you know, just turning up to places. It was in London and you could just do that, you know, go to places like the Troubadour Cafe and re- I, I had several readings there. And, um, yeah, there's nothing like reading a poem, you know, to to find out very quickly if it's dying on his feet you know? <laughs> and, uh, you're sort of, when you've got that many readings it's very you can quickly hone what's working yeah and, but, but that's what, not necessarily what work. but yeah you know, what works for the reading but it could be a poem that's very fine on the page mm. though could yeah be. but i'm pleased i got john to read that thorn poem for example which oh, he said yes. he'd never read i like that poem very much it's kind of mysterious and interesting he, he remarked that uh he quite liked. In fact, a lot of our poets quite like it when we suggest which poems they should read. Yes, I have heard had people say that. Actually, it's nice to be asked. I remember Claire Shaw yeah. saying, oh, this is different, you know, being asked. Well, I suppose it's nice that yeah, we've actually selected them because we really like them. I'm intrigued to know, as I'm sure listeners are, Peter, what is the world's oldest work of literature? Well, lots of people say it's the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a poem, um, and its roots the roots of the poem go back 4,000 years in Mesopotamia, uh, which is modern-day Iraq. In the 19th century, they found these clay tablets, and a lot of them completely intact, uh, back from, you know, literally from millennia, and they've been piecing together these bits of clay tablets and reading them. And they keep discovering new bits of it so that the text itself is being updated. 
I like that idea of, you know, putting all these bits together in in whatever order seems appropriate. And then it's like, oh, hang on a minute, it is another bit. Where should we put that? (laughs) I mean, I'm really interested in these very early texts in Egypt at the time, sort of equivalent things would be spells that were written inside coffins. So when you you went in, you know, all mummified, the, the, the coffin would be lined with spells, which would help you travel west to where the sun sets and where um, art and god of the sun disc was. So yeah, there was a bit of ancient Egyptian stuff going on at the same time. But this is, a, a you know, something very recognisable as a kind of epic poem. And it, it's about the this king, Gilgamesh, of a city-state called Uruk. The sort of poem starts with him being a really terrible king and the gods fashion someone who will challenge him. They create a kind of wild man called Enkidu, who's sort of roaming about in the wilds. And a, a trapper spots Enkidu, and Gilgamesh sends a prostitute uh, off to sleep with him for seven days and seven nights. And uh, this ends up taming um, Enkidu somewhat. And Enkidu comes to the city-state of Uruk. And, of course, Gilgamesh and Enkidu have to fight to see who's the strongest. And it's a kind of big, big old punch-up. But they end up kind of drawing. And then they become best friends. Having become friends, they set off on all kinds of adventures. They go to a big cedar forest and uh, the goddess Ishtar falls in love with Gilgamesh, but she gets rejected because she's a very dangerous woman and tends to kill people that she falls in love with. It all sounds very Game of Thrones. It's like, is is nothing new under the sun, you know? Well, yeah. Uh, Fantasy epics with blokes fighting each other and women being sent to to seduce the bad guy. I mean, it's a a wee bit, you know, (laughs) it's been going on forever, hasn't it? Well, uh, apparently, yeah. But what's quite interesting is um, there's a reference in the poem to the flood, so that, uh, like the Old Testament. Fascinating. And I suppose it's a suggestion, that, given how long ago it was, that this would have been a, a tale told orally. Well, people say that, yeah, it was a kind of oral tale, which yeah. was then written down in these cuneiform in these clay tablets. And I've got this, the penguin, penguin classic version, which is translated by Andrew George. You know, the, the text itself has got bits missing, you know, words missing here and there, and some words that are kind of inferred from other bits and pieces. But I'll just read the first few lines of it just to give you the feel of it. And when I pause, that means the there's a word missing. He who saw the deep, the country's foundation, who knew was wise in all matters. Gilgamesh, who saw the deep, the country's foundation, who knew was wise in all matters. He, everywhere, learnt of everything, the sum of wisdom. He saw what was secret, discovered what was hidden. He brought back a tale of before the deluge. He came a far road, was weary, found peace, and set all his labours on a tablet of stone. He built the rampart of Uruk, the sheepfold, of holy Iana, the sacred storehouse, so it goes on and on. But I like this bit about he came a far road, was weary, found peace and set all his labours on a tablet of stone. And actually, in those days, you would be reading the story from a tablet of stone. So yeah. even then it was kind of referring to the medium of yeah. but the idea of looking down into the deep. And there is water. He dives into water at some point, but it's also looking back into the depths of history, too. 
I don't know. It's just no, a it's great, fascinating, great thing. Isn't it? Yeah, and very sophisticated. If you haven't encountered it, give it a go. Yeah. When you start reading that poem and you think this goes back 4,000 years, there's something quite vertiginous about and exciting about, you know, this is before Christ, before the pyramids. This is just so long ago. So what have you been dipping into, Robin? Something contemporary, just to balance out. Yeah, well, I've been looking at a few things lately, one of which is this first collection by Laura Tice, poet who is German-born, but she's living in the UK. And I saw her read at one of Live Cannon's Friday lunchtime readings. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I just, uh, she was very compelling. I, I was trying to think of the word, really, beguiling, I think. She's got this kind of magical her presentation the way she dresses and she she'd even put some there were some little fairy lights in the background that sounds really twee but it wasn't that at all there was something very kind of you know come into my world about mm. about her and the way she read these poems very strange poems mysterious she read this poem called the clockmaker's daughter which i'm not going to read because it's it's quite long but it's also the way she read it was just perfect anyway i really enjoyed her reading i got hold of this book it's her first collection as i say it's called how to extricate yourself it's published by dempsey and windle and i wasn't sure about how to extricate yourself because i always think of i think of it as being a a, a transitive verb, you know, how to extricate yourself from something, yeah. <laughs> from what? But I guess maybe that's part of the mystery, you know, the slightly mm. strangeness of it. Yeah. So, yes, it's... It makes it's, me think of legal things. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, something, something technical, perhaps, mm. or very precise. Hard to give a theme to the whole book, but there's a huge amount of myth and strangeness and otherness we've got a number of poems about witches and familiars that kind of thing it's really hard to classify i wouldn't say it was mm. just this fantastical fantasy collection there's a huge amount of humor and sharpness and also contemporary because it's themes. a bit of a balancing act isn't it because i love all those kind of things but they can if not handled right sort of drift off to into being quite twee and things can't they indeed and uh, and I and I didn't feel that. And I th I'd like to read a short. Well, I'd like to read this this little poem because I think this illustrates the kind of duality, whatever the word is, because it's it's kind of allegorical. And it's it's got a dragon, but it's also very much about relationships. So it's called advice from one who's been burnt before. On the first day, the dragon moves in. Don't tell the neighbours, but. Take the batteries out of your smoke detector. You'll thank me later. You can stop paying your electricity bills. Even asleep, a dragon is more than a roomful of candles. If you are stumped for what to feed your dragon, a little fire goes a long way. Buy a multi-pack of tea lights. Fire is what it breathes and what burns in its veins. It's also what it likes to snack on every once in a while. The way bees love to eat honey, but also make honey. Oh, and most important of all, if your dragon is thirsty, give it verses, but no water, never water, but maybe a song. If it is scared, stroke its wings till your hand scorches. 
or let it listen to the ember bloom rhythm of slow, soft breathing that rises from you like smoke as you drift off in its glow. Mm, that was really good. It's nice, yeah. isn't it? It's interesting how you can get, have something mythological and then juxtapose it with things like smoke alarms and yeah. stuff. And it, it just makes it real again, doesn't it? And it's and it's quite witty, you know. It's sort of yeah. cocking a bit of a a bit of a wink at you know the tea lights and everything, you know. Mm. So I so I, I quite liked that. So yeah, so Laura Tice, one yeah. to watch for. She's had lots of success in competitions and goodness knows yeah. what. And she's also multi talented. She's she writes. She's a singer songwriter. She writes novels. She won a really big short story competition last year. Oh, wow. So, um, we don't hate people that talented and successful, do we? We love no, them. I, I only admire them. <laughs> <laughs> but there we are. And I think she's also an actor. So it could, it could be that her oh, reading persona yeah, is a, is, it could be a persona. <laughs> <laughs> I could deal with her being a, <laughs> wonderful prose writer and a wonderful poet, and now a wonderful actress as well. <laughs> there are limits. <laughs> there you are, Laura Tice. <laughs> God bless her. <laughs>